Thank you. Good morning. Merry Christmas. I'd like to just spend some time praying before we get into God's Word. So let's pray. Father, as we uh, come before you, we come before you because this is the Lord's Day, remembering that the Lord Jesus Christ triumphed over the dead. And we, with other believers for thousands of years, we gather and we proclaim, uh, He is risen, He is risen indeed. And so we pray that this morning, as Jesus' name is lifted high in this place, Father, in your mercy, you would send down grace. Lord, we pray especially that you would send grace on those who are remembering lost loved ones at this holiday season, some even in this past year. Lord, you have made us for relationship. You've made us to love and to be loved. And so when holidays strike and loved ones are missing, we, we cry and we rage against the night. And we say, Lord, Lord, come, Lord, come. But draw near to those who feel the loss. Draw near to them. We pray that you would build them up. We pray that their longing for heaven would become sweeter. We pray that the hope of Jesus Christ would actually help this holiday season be less bitter. Lord, we pray that as we uh, just sense in our own heart, just a need to be made right with God, you would remind us again of the hope that that is possible through Christ. And uh, give us a peace that passes understanding. And give us a hope that goes forever. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Uh, Just wondering if you've ever bought um, that one particular Christmas gift that you knew the recipient would, was just going to giggle for joy once they received it. And uh, it, it, it filled you with such anticipation as you wrapped the gift and, and you put it under the tree. And then for those weeks leading up, it's almost painful for you to wait to give it. And then you just break down and you have them open it early. How many people have this ever done? Has this ever happened to you? Uh, it's, it's too good to keep under wraps. Uh, a few days, about four or five, six days ago, my wife, she had to give me a gift because she came across it and thought, oh, this is too good to wait till Christmas. And so she, she got me the Johnny Cash, Cash Christmas album with the Yule Log DVD scene. Yeah. So I was enjoying that last night as I was doing my final preparation for the today, this morning. Like, this is too good. Too good. Well, today we're actually finishing an Advent sermon series that we've been walking through the first chapter of Paul's, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. And in the first 17 verses of this letter, Paul focuses on Jesus Christ. He says, this, that what I want to speak to you is concerning the Son. The meat of this letter actually doesn't start until verse 18. But now he has one last thing to say in verses 16 through 17. Uh, Last week we looked at what Paul had said about his desire to come and be with them. That he's been praying for them regularly. 
He's now writing to them intentionally. He, he, he plans to visit them subsequently. But it's that one last idea about wanting to come, wanting to share the gospel with you, that leads him to say what he has to say in verses 16 and 17. So to set the stage, I want to read uh, chapter 1, verse 15, and then we'll focus our time this morning on verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1. So verse 15, Paul says, That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And then he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is is written, the righteous will live by faith. So, Paul says this message is too good to keep under wraps. Notice that he starts this passage by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, a pastor of a couple generations ago named James Stewart of Scotland said this, there's no sense in declaring you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to say it. Um, So let's think about this a little bit. In what ways could someone be ashamed of the gospel? Or how could a Christian feel embarrassed about speaking about the faith? Well, for starters, think about Paul in the first century. Paul gave his life to travel thousands and thousands of miles to tell people that a crucified man in a backwater nation in the Roman Empire, is the Lord and Savior. It would be somewhat similar to saying, I know a guy a few weeks ago who was electrocuted in Podunk, Kansas, who's the Savior of the world. People go, wow, really? You know, or, or, or some people maybe today are more more ashamed of the gospel because they they look they 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 suspect that if they went to someone and just said you need a savior, people are like oh, I don't need that. Maybe that's why people might be embarrassed, or you might be embarrassed to 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 to, to profess that you you believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell, or you might feel reluctant to say that Jesus is the only way to God. You know, I remember a woman who had come back from a Christian camp. She had surrendered her life to Jesus. And she comes into her family that was primarily a church family and said, I'm now a follower of Jesus. And they're like, that's great, but just don't take it too seriously. Right? You can be a little bit of a Christian, but you can't be all in and preferably don't talk about it, especially at the holidays. Now, Paul knew that shame, reluctance, and embarrassment were possible in his day. But he says, but I know things in my heart. No, not my heart. I know things in history that have occurred, objective truths that say, I am not ashamed of the testimony, the good news about Jesus Christ. Knowing these truths, knowing what has happened, he was bold and he was confident And he gives primarily two reasons for his boldness, his confidence, his no shame. And the the one reason is because the gospel is God's power to save. And then he said, secondly, because the gospel discloses 
God's righteousness. So let's look at these. Verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Then he says, for, here's the reason, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, I think admittedly that kind of reads kind of weird to how we talk, right? Because the word gospel means good news or glad tidings. It's a message. And you might be asking, like, how can words, like, how can a phrase, how can a How can that have power? And not like a little bit of power. It says power to save any Jewish person who comes to Christ, any Gentile person who comes to Christ, not just in the first century, but until the Lord returns. How can words have power to affect a person's salvation? Well, just give some comparison. We believe that some phrases, some expressions of truth are are power-packed messages. Um, for example, I love you. And that's a power-packed message. Uh, these words unite couples. It, it moves them to marriage. I love you. Is, it's just a three-syllable phrase in English, and yet it has the power to change a lifetime. What are some other ex- words or phrases that have the power to shape just a lifetime? How about, I'm pregnant. Right? That phrase is just words, but if it's baked in truth, it's going to change your life forever. What about if dad comes home and says, we're broke? That's a power-packed message. So, messages in and of themselves mean nothing, but if they're baked in reality, if they're baked in historical truth, they have power, power to change. And, and what Paul is going around the world and saying, here's the good news of salvation. It's because it's rooted in history. I don't know how much you guys know about different religions, but a lot of religions aren't actually baked in history. Hinduism is not rooted in history. It's a bunch of kind of phrases and expressions and sometimes actually no expressions, just saying, um, and you'll connect with some divine reality. Uh, Christianity has been defined as the most falsifiable religion. That is, it's rooted in history and dates and people. I appreciate even just the reading this morning as we sing worship. It's, it, it names emperors and kings. Uh, the, the Apostles' Creed, when we talks about crucified under Pontius Pilate. We name a, a, a person that was part of Christ's death. The witnesses of Jesus Christ, they give testimony that we, see, we saw him. We read in 1 John this morning, they, they say, we saw him, we touched him. And then they say, and now we proclaim to you the eternal life. Jesus says, I have a message that has power. It's because it's baked in history. And those who believe can be saved. You know, later in the New Testament, Paul explains the power of the gospel this way. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, maybe you remember that there's this old George Strait's country song entitled Check Yes or No. Let me remind you of the lyrics. Uh, George writes, it started way back in third grade. I used to sit b- beside Emmy Lou Hayes, a pink dress, a matching bow, and her ponytail, She kissed me on the school bus, but told me not to tell. Next day, I chased her around the playground, crossed the monkey bars to the merry-go-round, and Emmy Lou got 
caught passing me a note. Before the teacher took it, I read what she wrote. Do you love me? Do you want to be my friend? And if you do, well, then don't be afraid to take me by the hand. If you want to, I think this is how love goes. Check yes or no. Later in the song, he says, last night I took her out in a white limousine. 20 years together, she still gets to me. Can't believe it's been that long ago when it got started with just a little note. Do you love me? Do you want to be my friend? Little short messages. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in our second idea, but one of the major messages of the gospel is God loves you. God loves you. In 1 John, uh, the Apostle John uses something similar. He says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. And he sent his one and only son as a propitiation, as a sacrifice for our sins. God loves you. And it's demonstrated in history. It's vindicated in history at the resurrection. God loves you. It's been said, the sin behind every sin, the sin behind every sin is that you don't believe God loves you. If you don't believe God loves you, you're going to go looking for love in all the wrong places. But when you capture the message of the gospel, that God loved you enough to send his son to save you, and he didn't come up with this in a whim, it's been prepared before the foundation of the earth to save his people, He loves you, and that captures your heart. It changes you forever. The gospel has the power to save. First, the Jew, which means God was faithful to his promised people. He would send them a Messiah. He would send them a Savior. He would send them a king in the line of David, and he was faithful to his people. But it was too small a thing to only save his people, Israel. The salvation was too sweet, too potent, and then it exploded. And it's a light to all people to come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you believe this news? Have you tasted God's power to save? Has that, that idea of God loves you, rocked your world and changed you forever? Today is the day of our salvation. Today is the day to know God's saving power. This, this news is too good to keep under wraps. The gospel is God's power to save. There's a second reason that Paul wants to to talk to the Romans. He wants to get to the Romans, and he's going to get there eventually. All expense paid trip by the Roman Empire. But what he's going to continue to do in the book of Romans, he said, I want to tell you the story of the gospel. And he, he uses this real summary expression here in verse 17, that the gospel discloses God's righteousness. Verse 17, it says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, or from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, God, the, the gospel discloses God's righteousness. Now, that expression, God's righteousness, is actually quite, quite loaded. It's used eight to ten more times in Paul's letters. And, and actually, context will tell you that it doesn't quite mean the same thing in each context. But one of the simplest ways to understand in this passage, is when it says that this is disclosing God's righteousness, it's this. This is what the gospel does. It shows us God's righteous way of making his people righteous. 
This is God's righteous way to make people righteous. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, if you read the first uh, section in Romans, so Romans 1.18 to about Romans 3 verse 20, the Apostle Paul is going to take about 75 verses to tell the world, if you don't understand this, you need to know this, that every human being is morally bankrupt and deserves God's wrath. That is, we are all unrighteous. If, if, you, if you need, if you, if you um, struggle with a real sense of self-importance, I encourage you, read Romans 1, 118 through Romans 3.20. Right toward the end it says, no one has an excuse before God. We're all held accountable. We all fall short of God's glory. We sin with our minds, our lips, our hearts. None of us can stand on our own merits. And we have to read that and say to God, it is true that I deserve judgment and I deserve hell. In fact, it would be unrighteous of you, God, to not send me to hell. And if you want to honor a God who is morally right and true and just and virtuous, then you have to get to a place where you're like, God, if you're that good and you're that holy and I look at myself in the mirror according to your word, then the right thing, the righteous thing for you to do is to send me to hell. That makes God good and you appropriately damned. Merry Christmas. But this is why when it talks about the righteousness of God, this is God's righteous way to make people righteous. So if it is righteous for God to damn people, if it's righteous, then holy and good for God to hold people to account, then it would be unrighteous to be like, oh, it's okay, you can just get a pass. So God had to think of a way. He had to come up with a plan. And Romans later in Romans chapter 3, it says, God demonstrates his righteousness in this. He sends his son to experience the payment, the penalty, the condemnation that his people deserve. And so now God upholds his righteousness. Condemnation comes down on the deserving. But what Jesus does, and why we call him a mediator, is he steps in our place and he takes it on himself. So now God's righteousness is upheld. The guilty are punished. The those who deserve hell take condemnation. But it falls on his son, his perfect son. And this is why Jesus had to be born a human. This is why the Son of God took on human flesh. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and then to give his life as a ransom for many. And he takes all of our rags, all of our unrighteousness, all of our sin, all of our debt. And God exhausts his wrath on his son. Pays it out in full on his son. And three days later, The father raises his son from the dead and vindicates him as the son of God in power. Well done, good and faithful servants. 
And now it opens the door that anyone who believes in this crucified and risen Savior can receive the now vindicated status of the Son. This is how God makes the unrighteous righteous. The righteous one dies for the unrighteous, and those who believe can now have Christ's righteousness. We can have Christ's title. We can be a son of God, a daughter of God, an internal inheritance. Scripture says those who have trusted in Christ will one day judge the angels with Jesus. This is God's righteous way of making his people righteous, right? It's what God does and what God gives. It's God's action and it's God's gifts. The Bible talks about when someone trusts in Christ, they are made righteous. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. We, come, we use the term justification, right? Justification is that the courtroom of heaven speaks and says, based on the work of my son, I now declare you right with God. Legally clear of all charges because he took your condemnation. I appreciate how John Calvin explains justification. He says this, we define justification as follows. The sinner received into communion with Christ is reconciled to God by his grace. While cleansed by his blood, he obtains a forgiveness of sins and clothed with Christ's righteousness as if it were his own. He stands confident before the heavenly judgment seat. The person who got to that place that said, Lord, the right thing for you to do to send me to hell, who then trusts in Jesus, can then, it says, stand confident before that heavenly seat, that holy seat, and say, your son died for me. And that's why I'm here. A boldness, a confidence. That's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of this gospel. Now, and then, Right when Paul says this, he, he knows that there's an interlocutor, a, a doubter, who's going to run in and, and say something. But, but that's not how the Old Testament works, Paul. Our Old Testament patriarchs were saved through obedience. Paul, you're out of your mind. And Paul expects it. He's like, oh, let's read our Old Testament. And so he actually quotes the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk and says, this is what's been promised. This is what's been promised. He, he says this, the righteous will live by faith. Right? Righteousness is about faith in God, not personal performance. We live by faith, not by effort. So if you actually go back and you read the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, there you will read a story that God is about to bring condemnation on Israel through the hands of Babylon. This is good. And by the way, the Habakkuk, the prophet, is like, what, God? You're going to use a wicked nation to bring judgment on your righteous people? And the book of Habakkuk says, no, you're not righteous. And that's why condemnation is coming. But then he holds out this hope. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, even though it's time for the people to get their due, God says, there's hope for the one who will trust in me. By faith, you can live. And that's what Paul's doing. Believe, and you might live, though you deserve judgment. 
And then Paul uses this even stranger expression at the, where he says that it's from first to last or from faith to faith. And there's a lot of possibilities of what this could mean. And I'm drawn to the idea that the scholars say that this is just the summary of the Christian life. It begins with faith. It continues with faith. It ends with us still believing in faith. Either you trust God to justify you or you try to justify yourself. You're not supposed to say shut up, I guess. But here's what the Christian has to do. You have to say shut up to your inner lawyer. Like always trying to justify yourself. I'm not that bad. I'm a really good person. The Christian says shut up. I'm guilty. I'm wrong. I'm needy. Help me. And the judge says, based on what someone else has done for you, I declare you righteous. That's why Jesus is actually called our advocate. He's the only one who can save us. I wonder if you realize that prior to believing in Jesus, we were all addicts of something up to our eyeballs in debt. We turned away from our father, spit in his face, and run after every pleasure imaginable. The Bible uses the imagery that eventually we were abducted by Satan and sold on the auction block. We became slaves of sin and death. But Jesus loves you. And so he came and he died for you. And something even more amazing than Prince Charming and Cinderella, something happens though. We're the Cinderella with all of our rags, all of our poverty, all of our shame, all of our rejection, all of our loss. But when Christ marries Cinderella, she's wealthy and she's welcomed and she's received into the kingdom. All of her debts are paid. She now has the inheritance of her husband. And that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a part of the church. We have everything that we have because of Christ, because he's married us and he's welcomed us. He takes our shame and he gives us his name. This is a sweet deal. There is no better life. I love how Paul expresses just his own rec recognition of what had happened when he finally trusted in Messiah Jesus. He puts it in Philippians 3.8 this way. He says, what is more, I consider Everything a loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So on this Christmas morning, can I hold out to you again the greatest message ever recorded? A message packed with power to save. A message that discloses God's righteous way of making his people righteous. And whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And the warning is whoever does not believe is condemned already. No one is too good to not need Jesus. But no one is too bad to not get Jesus. Faith is simply the response of the soul, much like a hungry man opens his mouth for bread. 
And so to the hungry, Jesus says, come and eat. To the thirsty, the Father says, come and drink. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this message. And we confess that there have been times where we have been reluctant to share or embarrassed to proclaim. But today I pray that you'd open our eyes again, open our ears again, open our hearts again to say with Paul that I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to everyone who believes to save even the Jew, even the Gentile, even me. Thank you that God, you have made this righteous way to make your people righteous. And so we honor your righteousness. We honor your holiness. We honor your goodness. We thank you that in your righteousness, you are slow to anger and abounding in love. You are compassionate and kind to your people. And so we gather on this Christmas morning, we gather on this Lord's Day again, and we say, we know that we did not love you first, but we do want to love you back today. Thank you for your love that is found in Christ Jesus. We praise you, we praise you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.